Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Dr. Scott Eddington is the CEO and co-founder for Deep Labs. His career spans over two decades of creating next-generation technology capabilities in the payments, defense, and intelligence sectors. Prior to co-founding Deep Labs, Dr. Eddington served as the global head of research and development for Visa Incorporated. Eddington played a critical role in both the formation and execution of Visa's innovation and technology strategies and served as a member of Visa's architectural leadership board. Prior to joining Visa, Eddington was a technology executive at Booz Allen Hamilton, where he ran the firm's technology injection emerging technologies practice. In this capacity, he was responsible for all of Booz Allen's technology injection, R&D, strategic prototyping, and knowledge management and information sharing efforts. Eddington also directed the firm's external technology relationships with academia, national labs, the vendor community, and various technology incubators. He holds a degree from the University of Virginia, Johns Hopkins University, and industry certifications in the areas of security, strategy, and network computing. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Scott Eddington. Dr. Eddington, thank you so much for joining me for this wonderful conversation. I am ecstatic to talk to you about all of the things that you have accomplished uh, with respect to now you being the CEO and co-founder of Deep Labs. And maybe we could just start there and you can talk about, you know, what is Deep Labs? Sure. Well, number one, thanks for taking the time um, to, to spend with me this, this afternoon. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, so Deep Labs, you know, in a 30-second uh, overview, million foot view, it's a, you know, a, a company that's pretty much focused entirely on context-aware artificial intelligence um, capabilities. And so what that means for the, for the non-geek out there effectively is, you know, think of a world where um, computer systems really fully appreciate what persona you might be exhibiting at any given moment in time. So the easy example I always use is Scott Eddington sitting in, in Oakland, California, pre-pandemic is a little different than Scott Eddington having you know, sheltered in place you know, for two and a half to three months in Oakland, California. Yes, from an identity perspective, it's still Scott, but obviously the context and everything around all of us has shifted. And because of that, you know, having systems that are intelligent enough to understand that, yeah, it's still Scott, but the personas, the personas that Scott will now exhibit will be dramatically different or would have shifted based on context, based on surroundings, based on, you know, everything that's happening in 2020. Yeah, that's interesting that you call them personas because um, as in the world of diversity and inclusion, and of course, I've worked in the area of identity it's all about your identity. And it's almost like we have multiple identities all over the place, um, whether you're at work or at home or you know what your shopping looks like or any of that kind of stuff. So those personas, I'm assuming, can really engage a person in different ways depending on what they're trying to do. 
No, I, I think you nailed it, Melissa. Um, you know, obviously, given your background, you fully appreciate all the, in, the interesting things that have happened in the industry in the last 10, 20, now 30 years of our respective careers. And the reality is, is that, you know, circa you know, 2005, 2010, simply using sort of static attributes like mom's maiden name or social security number, that was fine, frankly. And that's how most of the system sort of keyed off of understanding, is it really Scott or is it not, right? But as we all know, unfortunately, due to some you know, well-known data breaches and other things that have occurred now in the world, those static signals are frankly very much antiquated or, in my vernacular, decayed. And they've decayed because everyone has access to them now. I mean, you can Google where I went to high school, you can Google where I was born, like it's freely available and most times pretty accurate. And if the things you don't, you can't Google, you can certainly find on the dark web for, for next to nothing. And so because of that, as we, again, as we both know as practitioners, you know, there were a number of point solution providers that came up specifically focused around you know, things like address verification or device signals and device intelligence, which again, were absolutely fantastic, absolutely fantastic as a sort of a, a way to sort of patch the holes. But unfortunately, like anything else, you know, the advanced persistent threats that exist out there, whether it be from nation state actors, whether it be from, you know, from, from folks who, who are you know, individuals trying to do nefarious things, these signals have also decayed. And so what we wouldn't really be focused on is figuring out a mechanism and capabilities that we have to effectively create a full context-rich understanding of about, about an actor. And an actor for us, by the way, could be an organization, it could be a consumer, it could be a human being, it could be a bot. But the idea is effectively we want to be able to understand at multi-layers which signals should be used to identify what context that, that actor has to be in and then understand exactly what persona we'd expect that, that actor to exhibit at this moment in time versus what the reality is. And then effectively figure out a way, mechanism to see whether or not, is that really who we expect Scott Ames' persona to be right now versus, you know what, we've actually seen this persona before. And last time we saw it, it was associated with a bad act. You know what, I know they presented all the correct credentials, but decline, decline, decline. Or, you know what, it's a little different than we might expect from, from Scott at this moment, but you know, oh, he's in Washington, D.C. today as opposed to in California. Therefore, let's not introduce friction to this consumer experience. Let's go ahead and, and approve that transaction. And so it does work both ways, either from a propensity standpoint or an authorization standpoint, all the way to you know, sort of the opposite spectrum, which is you know, advanced risk capabilities. Yeah, we have truly geeked out right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I know I have my mom sitting here going, what are they talking about? No. Um, <laughs> but so tell me a little bit about how you got here, because... You know, the stuff that you're talking about when you start talking about artificial intelligence and all of the things that occur in the background to try and detect bad actors, there's a lot of folks. And I know even from a representation standpoint, there are not a lot of people of color in the industry that you're in. So how did you start out and how did you actually get to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, not, not to sound you know, too cheesy about it, but I think it really starts at, at home. And so I, I, I was blessed to have, and still do, two parents who um, are educators. And prior to that, their parents, both sets literally, were both were also teachers. And so education was always very, very important for us in the household. Now, if you ask my parents about that and whether or not I value that as a, as, as a grade school kid or a high school kid, I get a different response. But it was always, it was always certainly very important in our household. And my older brother, uh, Charles, uh, electrical engineer, also with the University of Virginia undergrad, and, and ultimately ended up going to Booz Allen and working in um, the intelligence community, 
was also very much focused on sort of signals and noise. So I've always sort of played in that realm, or at least certainly been interested in sort of signals and what, what does that really mean, you know, even in layman's terms or non-geek terms, and sort of that that understanding of how signals can be harnessed is always sort of important to me and interesting to me. And so even as I went, you know, as an undergrad at the University of Virginia, my focus was always trying to understand why people do what they do, you know, and, and when they do it. And so if you were to look at sort of my, my undergrad, you know, curriculum, for lack of a better term, it's, it's a combination of economics, uh, computer science, philosophy, government, um, and even religious studies. And the idea was, you know, what are the attitudinal, what are the psychographic, what are the sort of the economic things or incentives that, that get people to do or influence what, what people do and, and why? And so, you know, as I was leaving undergrad, you know, down at University of Virginia, down in Charlottesville, you know, most of the firms that were there were hiring for either New York or Washington, D.C., and most of the offers I received were actually for Washington, D.C. And as you might imagine, you know, being around the Beltway, a lot of those folks were really focused on sort of public sector work. And then specifically, my focus was in, was in defense and the intel community. And so, as you might imagine, you know, signals and noise are very, very important. And, you know, not to totally date myself, but when I was coming out of school, that was, you know, you know circa late 90s, early 2000s. And there were obviously some things happening around the world that were, um, that necessitated having folks who really understood, you know, how to parse signals, how to use that for, you know, to create a competitive advantage, whether it be on the commercial side or for warfighters um, and, you know, and the intel community as well. Interesting. Wow. So you just jumped right into defense. <laughs> And then you ended up at Booz Allen from there, or no? So, so yeah, so my, or my, that was part of what yeah, Booz Allen yeah, did. Yeah, exactly right. So you know, our, our focus there at the time was around you know, primarily the defense and intel community, and and so you know, you know, frankly, I don't want to say I lucked into it, but I kind of lucked into the role that I had, which was it wasn't dedicated to a single customer, or single client. It was actually across the whole spectrum. So I, you know, I had the opportunity to to. To, you can't make the stuff up, literally meet, you know, folks like the Secretary of Defense and, and you know, whether it be the people literally on the ground about to go to you know, Iraq or, you know, later on Afghanistan, all the way to the folks who happen to, you know, operate in some of the other circles that you'd expect in the intel community, you know, and a kid, you know, 22-year-old kid, <laughs> you know, grew, who was born in Greensboro, grew up in the Philadelphia area, you know, you, you're not going to expect to see things like that, right? Um, yeah, no doubt. That had to be kind of a shift for sure. I mean, so, and I'm assuming then you had some mentors, sponsors, people that kind of helped you. Cause I can't imagine going from school to, you know, like, hey, by the way, here's the Secretary of Defense and we've got folks going to Iraq. Or, I mean, what, yeah. what was that like? You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I think sometimes youth is actually the old adage, it's sort of wasted on the young. Like at the time, I was like, "Well, yeah, this is normal, right? Like this, yeah. Of, of course, you you meet with a, a two-star general and you, you, you brief them on the cool stuff you're doing. Like that's what everyone does, right? And then you look back twenty plus years later, and you're like, "No, <laughs> that's, that's not what happens. Come on, man. Right. And, you know, so to answer your direct question, um, you know, I was very fortunate. You know, early on, you know, my first executive uh, boss at Booz Allen, actually, again, looking back, how this happened, like was you know very instrumental in my career. He was a former um, fighter pilot, again, like uh, F-4, he flew F-4 Phantoms in Vietnam War, um, you know, literally like, you know, ran R&D for McDonnell Douglas, you know, back when that when that company happened to exist. And so like, you, you hear these things, you're like, oh, like Top Gun, like in my head, I'm like, oh, this is like Top Gun movie, right? It's like, well, actually, no, literally it's like that. 
you know, talking about landing aircraft, aircraft and aircraft carriers out in the Indian Ocean, like just crazy stuff like that. And, and I share that story only to say is that, you know, that, that particular gentleman took, looking back, a fair amount of time with me and probably was probably more, far more patient than he probably should have been with me. And I think that's important because, you know, number one, it taught me how to be a true professional. But I think number two, also the notion of learning to pay it forward. All right. I vividly remember a conversation, you know, and again, I'm telling myself a little bit, vividly remember a conversation I had when I was I think, 22 or 23, I think it was about a year and a half in my career moves. And apparently, you know, I thought I was doing a great job. Well, he let me know a little different in the sense that, you know, he sat me down and, he, and I remember this like it was yesterday, he sat me down and he said, you know, Scott, I have this problem and I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping you can help me out with it. And I was like, yeah, of course, because, you know, I know everything, right? Like, I'm, 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 of course I can help you out. And he says, yeah, I have this, you know, this really bright kid that, uh, you know, I think has a lot of potential, but he's just not, he's not getting it. And I was like, well, you know, I'm happy to mentor him. I'm happy to, <laughs> he's like, God, come on, man. <laughs> like, it's you. <laughs> Wake up, it's you. Here's what you're not doing. Here's what you need to do. Here, here's the expected outcomes, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, at the time I was, I was a little bit hurt, a little, a little bit taken aback, but I was just like, the fact that he took that much time, the senior executive at this, you know, Fortune 500 company, one of the you know, best consulting firms literally in the world. That must mean something. There, there must mean that there is something to be had here in terms of what he believes I can do and thus I should be able to do. And so I've always sort of really you know, went out of my way to find sort of want to say diamonds in the rough, but diamonds in the rough where it's like, you know what, sometimes people just need a truthful conversation, a real truthful conversation. And it's not that there's lack of intent or any malice. Sometimes when people aren't performing, it's because Sometimes they just need a chance. Sometimes they need, they need some straight talk. In other cases, you, know, you, you just need to be very clear in terms of what the expectations are, which is not always given, frankly, not always given to us. And, 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 and so, you know, I, I, you know, 20 plus years later, like I still, you know, I vividly remember that, like it was yesterday, like I mentioned before, but I also go out on a way to sort of talk with some of the young folks, especially people of color, about that story, because frankly, he didn't have to do that. He yeah. chose to do that. And, you know, looking back, it was a five minute investment of his time, but it's been, you know, now a 20 plus year career that has definitely benefited from. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, those people, you think back and, you know, they had a pivotal impact on your career, I'm sure, for you to be able to recall it like it was yesterday. (laughs) But I think, you know, those are the things that continue to push you to levels of excellence. You know, I mean, my father used to always tell me, He used to always compare me and the president to, you know, like, what did you do today? Because you're slacking, right? Um, So, you know, you you always want to have high standards for what you're doing. So flipping back to, you know, kind of the work that you're doing in artificial intelligence and signals, one of the things that I hear a lot about is just in terms of, um, people of color. And, you know, I spend a lot of time, obviously, on um, financial education. And so there is this whole segment about financial inclusion. And essentially, there are many people, specifically of color, who are not part of the financial system. But I think all economies think that they should be working or at least have a strategic plan to address financial inclusion. So can you talk a little bit about how artificial intelligence and where we're going impacts people that are not, maybe they don't have a bank account or they um, aren't 
you know, maybe they're using a check cashing or, you know, doing some alternative financing. How does that impact some of the stuff that you're doing with artificial intelligence and all of those discussions we're having on privacy and, and other things? Yeah, well, number one, thanks for the question. It's, it's a topic that I'm, as you know, very passionate about, um, specifically the, the underbanked populations, whether it be here in the U.S. or, or certainly globally. It, you know, it's you know, the numbers are very clear that they disproportionately affect people of color. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, first and foremost, I think the key thing is understanding. Again, going back to sort of my, my my college days, what are the what are the influences as to why that's happening? So that could be both macro and micro. I think there are some system, you know, obviously systematic um, reasons for some of the underbanked reasons, but I also think from a you know from a techie perspective for for a second, if you sort of take a step back and look at how typical systems, bank systems, or financial services systems work, in terms of how they onboard new customers or, or, or clients, how they make you know credit underwriting decisions, how they verify things like income or verify addresses. These are all sort of things that, you know, frankly, you and I sort of take for granted, you know, given, you know, given where we are, but these are real things that are hurdles and introduce friction, even for something simply as, I want to start a bank account for my, you know, my eight-year-old. Or I want to start a college fund, or, you know what, I just want to have a checking account <laughs> so I can, you know, write checks or, you know, God forbid, write checks now, but, you know, have, have some sort of you know, space in the, in, the, in the digital economy. And so, what I would say, going back to my, my earlier statement around, you know, signals and noise, the ability to not always focus in on sort of the, again, the antiquated signals of yesteryear, mom's maiden name, you know, what, what high school you go to, you know, some of the, the old sort of static signals, but more focus on the near or sort of the recent signals that now exist based off of, you know, where we are and well, normally where we would be in 2020 and hopefully now in 2021. And I, I stress that only because, whether we, again, talk about digital onboarding remotely, because now I guess everyone really doesn't want to go into a branch, but how do you actually, how do you actually identify that it is in fact Scott without having a you know, social security card, again, I'm dating myself, social security card or a passport? How do you do that remotely? How do you do that securely? How do you do that in a frictionless environment that's not you know, overly invasive, number one, but still has a confidence level that's higher enough that says that actually meets the guidelines necessary for a risk-based system. And so, the, you know, a long answer to your very short question, the, the reality is, is that for the underbanked populations, keying off of things that are, are again, static signals of yesteryear is actually a method of dis disenfranchisement. It, it is. And, and so if we're able to use the modern signals, if we're able to use the context that we talked before around personas, then in fact, you can start providing banking services and banking capabilities to folks who ordinarily wouldn't necessarily have a, a, a generic checking account. So if you're talking about, let's say, the prepaid market as an example, because as we both know, that's something that the underbank population you know, does, does use, does leverage. You know, how do you actually still enable them to be onboarded um, and still meet the demands of, you know, like the Patriot Act, Patriot Act, as you know? That sometimes is difficult for some people um, from a hurdle perspective, right? So again, is it simply keying off of the static signals or can you actually start replacing those static signals with the dynamic signals that we now enjoy? And the answer overwhelmingly is yes. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. <music> well, 
Well, and it's interesting because it seems like the more signals we get, the more models are built that provide, you know, things like credit scoring and fraud scoring capabilities. And if the if the underbanked population has a lack of information in those models, then it can create other challenges for whatever the objective is, which to your point, hopefully is less systemic in terms of, you know, kind of hurdles around systemic racism and stuff like that in the past, because at least it's using information in an objective manner. But if the data is not there, then I guess you have other issues. So how how do you account for things like signals that aren't really there? Mm -hmm. No, no, so so I 100% agree with you. And I would answer two parts. I think first thing is, let's just fully recognize how the old old systems work, right? And what they over-index for, which is, given your background, you know firsthand, they're over-indexed for things that tend to, frankly, tend to uh, represent certain populations, not, not others, right? So if you look at it from just from a, a pure data science modeling perspective, what does the sample look like, right? And figuring out what should the sample be in 2020 versus maybe what it was in 1985 or 1990 when a lot of these systems were first sort of theorized, right? And so... If you sort of eliminate the, dare I say, the, the lack of proper sampling and you actually fix that, that's, that's step one. Step two is if you now have a proper sample or a fully representative sample, then you can start looking at other methods and other attributes and characteristics that could represent the gap that, that you just mentioned, mentioning, right? So again, as opposed to keying off of where you went to, make this up, where you went to high school, the fact that you know, you've had a job for the last two two years at the same place. Frankly, I'd rather know that. <laughs> than where you went to high school. <laughs> yeah, where you went to high school, you know, in, you know back, in, back in the early 90s, right? So, you know, and I sort of say it somewhat flippantly, but, but it's actually true. Again, if you, if you really just think about the context surrounding each individual, you know, human beings are remarkably great at picking up on things, right? You know when someone's a little bit off that day, right? Or something, you know, your gut says something's not quite right. Up until now, those models, they didn't really take into account instinct or gut. They, they were some hard, fast numbers. This is what we've always done. It's a decline. As opposed to, wait a minute, this guy's had a job for the last year, same place, same income level. That company's doing well. I, I can tell you that company's doing well because, you know, a thousand other factors that we have access to. You know what? He's not actually not a credit risk, right? Like, that, that, that's, that's actually someone we want to get behind as opposed to, yeah, decline because we can't figure out when we went to high school. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting because as we, so where do you think we're going now since you're all into the artificial intelligence and cryptocurrency and all of that? What does life look like 10 years from now? Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad you said 10 years as opposed to next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's anybody's guess, 2021, right? <laughs> I, I would be happy to, to make it to 2021, right? Um, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I think from a, financial services perspective, I think it really does come down to just hyper-personalization. But not in like in a creepy way where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, uh-uh, no. This is, this is too sci-fi-ish, like 1980s sci-fi movie-ish. I don't want that, right? But what, they, what, what customers do do want, and to be fair, it's also a little bit generational, right? So the, the kids, uh, sound old now, the, the kids are coming up right now, you know, there's, they have a certain expectation about what an experience looks like versus someone, let's say, my parents' age who are like, 
wait, no, I, I actually, I want to, I want to actually just get to type in my name. I don't want them to know it was me. They just walked in the door, right? And, and, and it's slightly generational, but I, I would say to answer your direct question, 10 years from now, it really is all about hyper-personalization. It is about understanding not only that it's Scott, but it's Scott on a Friday afternoon, you know, someone dressed down. And right now I can tell you, I can extrapolate that Scott's sort of quasi-business Scott, but he's sort of sliding into the weekend. So his persona is gonna, it will have shifted. The things that Scott will expect to have as he walks into a restaurant or walks into a grocery store will be dramatically different than if, if he was Tuesday afternoon, full suit in New York City, walking down the street. Yeah, it's still Scott, but hey, I'm going to influence Scott to maybe purchase this item. Or you know what? Don't bother Scott at all because very clearly he has a serious look on his face carrying his, his briefcase and he's headed to a, a customer meeting. And so again, for me, it is about total hyper-personalization. It's about understanding exactly what persona that actor is exhibiting at that moment in time, what, what, what persona we expect that person to exhibit in a, in a window of time. And then ultimately, how do, you, how do you best create an environment that is friction-free and also very secure that, again, creates that hyper-personal experience such that that consumer wants to use your product or that consumer wants to be part of, of your community. I mean, it's not, not to totally geek out on you, but like that's what's coming and frankly, that's what's already here. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because I'm maybe dating myself now, but I still remember the Jetsons when I was growing up. <laughs> and that's what it feels like. We're kind of moving into the Jetsons, which, you know, is pretty old when you think about what they were <laughs> envisioning way back then. So um, very interesting stuff. Well, well, well I'd say what's funny, though, about the, because I used to watch the Jetsons and all that stuff, too, um, is that if you really sort of dissect those shows, like, a lot of that stuff's already happened. Yeah. Right? So, so whether it be the you know the scooters that try to knock me over and in, in the middle of, of Oakland half the time, <laughs> um, or down in here in DC, um, you know that's real, right? Um, whether it be all the sensor technology that enables you know things like the Segway devices to, to work, or whether you know whether it be even our online experiences where lo and behold, um, I'm talking to you via video camera in real time feed, and it's almost like you're in the same room with me. That was all, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know when I was growing up in the, the late 70s and the 80s, um, that was all sci-fi stuff. Like, that wasn't going to happen. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's here now. And so yeah. the ability to, you know, even all the way down to using a mobile device and be able to unlock it with your face um, or your fingerprints or to be able to transact, i.e. send some, some form of currency halfway around the world. And, and as you know, Visa, you know, less than, less than a second. Like, that's amazing. And, yeah. And that's already here right now. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So <clears throat> I'm going to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent because I know now that you lead a company, Deep Labs, there has to be lots of discussion on representation and diversity and kind of, and I know you have somebody that's dedicated to, I think they call it people and culture, if I remember her title properly. And, you know, I have been at places where people say, I don't want to talk about company culture. We don't have a corporate culture. You know, what does that mean? Um, now we have this whole segment of people that are focused on diversity and inclusion. And I think probably every practitioner would agree that ideally those jobs should go away at some point. Because really, we should have diversity and inclusion, belonging, equity, all embedded into all of the company activities. 
So are there things, especially in your business, I imagine with representation being challenging for STEM students, like how, what are some things that you guys are thinking about in terms of, you know, accessing talent in those areas? Yeah, um, great question. As you know, well, that's a, a topic I'm quite passionate about and, and fully believe in. You know, so I, I would say, you know, my mindset, to be fair, is also very much given the fact that, you know, both my parents were children of the 60s, growing up in the South. And again, my, you know, my grandparents, both sides, were, were educators. So again, education is very important. It's for the building blocks uh, of how you sort of get ahead, so to speak, right, to actually achieve the quote-unquote American dream. And so with that as a backdrop, you know, my father um, worked at you know, HBCUs for most of his career. Um, and so again, you know, understanding how HBCUs work, understanding how the, the, the network effect associated with that, something that we, you know, whether it be when I was at Booze or at Visa, and certainly now we do tap into from a pipeline perspective. Um, the good news is there's plenty of folks out there who are, you know, su- super motivated, highly intelligent, and they just want an opportunity, right? The, the difficult part is figuring out how to map those folks who, who have all those attributes that you want into roles that, um, and frankly, also locations where there are communities of, of, of people of color, right? And so for us at Deep Labs, the, the cool thing, I was going to plug my company for a second, sorry, I have to do it, is, is that you know, we have locations, whether it be in the Bay Area or in places like New York and Washington, D.C., which, as you know, have you know, large communities of people of color. And so we are actively actively seeking you know, folks who want to, want to join a company that is very much forward, forward-looking, forward-thinking, but also very much mindful of very clear core values around things like accountability, which is important, but you know, collaboration and integrity and you know, having you know, a high degree of teamwork. And I stress that because at the, at the end of the day, from a pipeline perspective, especially within the, within the STEM um, perspective, most folks who come up with those programs They've had to do. They've had to abide by those core values just to make it, right? You have to be accountable not only to yourself, but to to other other you know, classmates. You have to you have to have integrity of your work. You know, obviously, you're not you're, you're not going to get your diploma if, if 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 you're not being honest. You have to be able to show you know teamwork and collaboration because oftentimes you're dealing with you know group projects and everything else, right? And so for us, again, you know really having a dedicated you know, function within our company focused on diversity and inclusion and people and culture is, we believe, is a, is a fundamental enabler to the success of our business. And, and, and I would say, having, having spoken with other you know, people of color that either you know, have co-founded or founded other companies or, or senior executives at you know, Fortune 100 companies, that, that is something that I, I believe is sort of universally shared at this point. I, I will say that, unfortunately for us, um, you know, dude, much like everyone else in the pandemic, it has hurt a little bit our ability to recruit. If for no, if for no other reason, just getting in front of people. But I would say that for those who are listening that are actually seeking you know positions, there are there are people there are people like me who are actually looking for people like you. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think um, you know because even during the pandemic, I think people thought that you know there's no jobs out there, and I kept get I kept trying to send them out because. I mean, every other day, somebody would say they're hiring, um, even through the pandemic. So I think it's interesting to see how growth occurs, because clearly there's some contraction going on. But then in other areas, there is still lots of growth happening. You know, and I think I know we've seen lots of, you know, 
um, digitization growth over the last, you know, several months. So it'll be interesting to see how things develop. And uh, I'm looking forward to to seeing you in 10 years, you know, flying a a self-driving car somewhere. <laughs> or maybe back in defense somewhere. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with me today. And um, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. Dr. Eddington. And I know you do a lot of teaching. I know that's near and dear to your heart as well. So I appreciate you bringing up historically Black colleges and universities because a lot of the HBCs don't get the credibility, the, you know, the visibility that they really deserve. So kudos to your parents and your grandparents for putting so much into you that you can continue to feed it into other generations. I appreciate that. And I will definitely pass it along to them. They'll be be pleased to hear that. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here, Scott. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Melissa. Take care. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.